In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk about the upcoming release of Tailwind CSS 1.0. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 109. Hey everyone, so before we get into the episode today, just a quick announcement. So today I just launched pre-orders for Full Stack Radio t-shirts and stickers. So I worked with a friend of mine who's a comic book artist to put together these really cool sort of death metal album cover themed Full Stack Radio shirts. And then I've got a bunch of awesome sticker designs that I've kind of had put together over the years that normally I give away at conferences and stuff, including Tailwind CSS stickers as well. Uh, So if that sounds up your alley and you want to check that out, head over to the show notes and there will be a link with more information. That's 35 bucks for a shirt and a sticker pack shipped anywhere in the world. So if you want to support the show, definitely head over there and check it out. Uh, That's all I got. On to the episode. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wallen, as always, and today I'm going to be speaking sort of to myself with the help of my friend Sam Selikoff, who's been a guest on the podcast a number of times. How's it going, Sam? It's going good, man. So, uh, the reason that I kind of wanted to do this episode, kind of doing it a little bit differently, is um, I wanted to talk about Tailwind CSS and sort of the road to 1.0, because that's kind of been uh, my focus lately. And I thought it would be kind of weird to just do a podcast episode where I was talking completely by myself. So I thought I could have a conversation uh, with Sam about it, and uh, anyone who listens to the podcast can sort of listen in and uh, hopefully get the scoop. So what do you think of that, Sam? Does that sound like a good approach? Yeah, I think uh, I think I'm probably a good person to be on the other side of this uh, episode just because I use Tailwind a ton and I've, I've even taught it, but I'm actually not familiar with kind of how it works, like how the sausage gets made, you know? Cool. So um, I'm really excited to see what's changed, what's going to change in 1.0 and just kind of you know, where your thinking is, you know, a year ago, you and I talked on our podcast about Tailwind and some of the motivations and some of the pushback you got from the philosophy. And now it's been, you know, a good amount of time where you've just really been able to iron out uh, the details and to a point where you're comfortable shipping on 1.0. So I think it's going to be a good conversation. Yeah, cool, man. So um, I don't know, where do you want to start? Is there anything in particular that uh, you're most interested in? Or do you think I should just... uh kind of come up with something (laughs) yeah so uh i think maybe the first thing would be why 1.0 yeah so i mean every project is supposed to reach stability at some point Uh, i think there's kind of two sort of schools of thought there's a lot of people who will put out a library and they sort of tag it as 1.0 basically from day one you know as soon as they feel like they have anything that feels even remotely like something they want people to be able to use they kind of tag it as 1.0 i think that's kind of what the semantic version guide sort of recommends too they kind of say like if people are using it in production it should be 1.0 already um is that is anyone using tailwind in production there's definitely a lot of people using tailwind in production (laughs) as it is so in some ways kind of what i'm working on right now is more like tailwind uh, version 2 than it is like tailwind version 1 when you look at uh from in that sense um so Tailwind has been kind of in the O dot whatever phase for like a year and a half, mostly because I'm terrified of tagging 1.0 and then wanting to to change something about it. And once you're before 1.0, like semantic versioning, you're technically allowed to basically do whatever you want and it doesn't matter. But the way that we've sort of been doing it is treating 
minor releases as major releases and patch releases as like minor and patch releases combined essentially so there's still like some element of predictability in terms of you know what will have changed based on the the version number um, but this has let me basically like we're at tailwind version 0.7.4 right now which means like in sort of tailwind terms we've had we're on like the seventh breaking release so if i had just released like 1.0 on day one i would have been at like tailwind 7 right now which just doesn't feel right because it just felt like i was still trying to iron things out get it out in the wild have people use it sort of learn from problems people run into and stuff yeah, and, and the reality is that there is still some sort of communication around a, a one project being 1.0. There's some something that it conveys about the stability of it. Yeah, I think there's sort of like, um, there's sort of two elements that sort of get like mixed up, which people have tried to figure out solutions for, and I've seen some projects kind of try and handle it. But But basically, there's sort of like a marketing connotation and sort of a computer machinery semantic version connotation to like major releases you know and for something like tailwind where it's a project that i kind of work on you know pretty passionately and want to try and turn into something that feels like a pretty polished product that a lot of people can use i kind of want there to be a bit of ceremony to like the 1.0 release because i think it's nice to be able to say like this is tailwind 1.0 this is kind of like a big deal um things aren't really going to change for the foreseeable future whatever um i've seen other projects kind of try to do things where they always use semantic versioning no matter well we're, we're using semantic versioning too but they don't feel so bad about like introducing major releases and they don't really attach any ceremony to them instead maybe they'll have like a code name or something and maybe like versions four five six and seven are part of like this line and then version eight comes out and that's actually like a big change um but we're not really chrome version 48 or whatever yeah and i don't really want to get that high up in the numbers before um kind of settling on something i kind of like the approach we've taken where it's like we can iterate pretty rapidly in the pre 1.0 phase making breaking changes here and there although still being i think very considerate about it and uh, making sure like the change logs and like the upgrade guides have been really thorough and stuff and trying not to break people's stuff unnecessarily in like an annoying way um but yeah we've been able to sort of iterate rapidly there in hopes of eventually just being able to say you know what things feel solid now happy with it is how it is tag it at 1.0 and then hopefully never even have to make a 2.0 although i'm sure <laughs> one day it'll come right so right. Yeah. absolutely uh i mean as again from the outside perspective when i first discovered tailwind you know probably a little over a year ago um I noticed it wasn't 1.0, but I also, you know, going to the site and seeing all the materials around it, it was very clear that this was uh, a well-maintained project that had polish to it. And I was going to be confident switching over, you know, at the times we were using tachyons, but you could see, you know, the relative maturity of the two things was about the same. They're both things that you would be confident kind of sticking your, your uh, project on. So even though it wasn't 1.0, I think there's a lot you can communicate outside of that. Yeah, and I think we've got pretty fortunate in the sense that um, a lot of people have sort of looked at it the way you have and seen sort of 
the polish on like the documentation and how complete things feel and you know seeing how thorough the upgrade guides and stuff are and and sort of made their own decision that like yeah it's pre 1.0 but i trust that sort of they're taking it like seriously and i feel pretty confident using it but there's also still a huge group of people who are sort of waiting for 1.0 still they kind of see that it's not 1.0 yet and they don't really look any further than that um, right. Which I think is is totally fair because there are going to be breaking changes in 1.0. Um, so the goal with the 1.0 is just to kind of lock in any last minute changes that we want to make to sort of the some of the higher level pieces of the framework, and to be able to ship something where we can communicate to people like it's even though I would say it's already prime time ready and has been forever, um, not forever, but it has been since pretty early. Um, we'll be able to sort of communicate like, yes, you can use this in a project and not really have few, not really have to worry about like convincing other people on your team who might be hesitant, at least when it comes to the versioning element of it anyway. So just being able to lock in something really solid and communicate that it's solid is kind of the, the real goal. That's, that's good to hear. Um, I think we've been using it since 0.5, mm. one, one of the 0.5 versions. And, you know, we even maintain a wrapper around it to add some stuff for ember apps and, and dynamic style guide routes and stuff like that and even still from 05 to, to 07 um you know the the small the few number of breaking changes that were there weren't really that big of a deal they didn't really impact us that much um either on the app side or the the library side so do you see the breaking changes that will be coming as part of 1.0 to be in a similar kind of area of of um of churn as as the minor versions were or is it going to be kind of a big difference you mean like breaking how much similar is, things or yeah like, or just how much is changing and how much the average consumer of tailwind is going to have to um do upgrades and, and certain code paths yeah. and refactorings to accommodate the new apis mm-hmm. so this is that is a question that i sort of haven't had a great answer to until recently um which basically to kind of step back a bit like one of the hard parts about like doing the 1.0 is that i see it as like my last opportunity to make sure that everything is perfect right it's like okay if i don't want to tag 1.0 knowing that there's still some area i'm not fully happy with and i might want to make a breaking change there because i don't want to have to tag a 2.0 because of some stupid little breaking change that's not really significant you know what i mean that doesn't really feel like it deserves the ceremony of like a 2.0 um and maybe that's irrational in some sense because if you look at other css frameworks like bootstrap for example i don't know for sure if bootstrap makes breaking changes in minor releases but people don't really sweat it as much because it's not like a little library that you're using that you're depending on that a bunch of other things are talking to it's kind of like a foundational thing it's Mm kind of like how um, I don't Ember is a terrible example because they're probably incredibly strict about this stuff from a semantic versioning perspective. But if you look at something like Rails, they definitely make breaking changes from like 5.0 to 5.1. Mm. And it doesn't really matter the same way as it does for like a library that you're using, um, even though it is kind of nice just to be able to depend on the semantic versioning semantics. Are you Anyways. saying that because uh, there's going to be a path from 5.0 to 5.1 if there is a change like that? Um, I just mean that like I've seen projects do breaking changes on minor releases and it hasn't really bitten people the same way because like 
projects like rails are like the backbone of like your entire application for example it's not like some little gem that you're depending on where like you're not actually sure that upgrading a minor release like what the impact of that is going to be because you're, you're sort of following along with like the the framework is so important to what you're doing that you sort of know what's up it's not like it's some not little that thing weird. that you're relying on some for some little functionality that you're not paying that close attention to and you really want to be able to depend on semantic versioning there you know right right because then right with the smaller libraries you have like they can be transitive dependencies of other dependencies you have and and so now if you have multiple versions of those things breaking on minor or patch versions you're going to have like a nest of of issues yeah. Yeah, so all that to say, I think ultimately at the end of the day, if you can just follow semantic versioning everywhere, that is the best in terms of making things predictable for people. Um, So that's why, you know, I don't want to ship 1.0 and then feel three months later that I want to ship a 2.0 because I want to change one class name or something stupid like that. Um, So what that's led me to do anyways, and it has been like almost to a detriment is like, I'm combing over everything in the framework, looking at every single class name, looking at every single configuration option and just questioning, like, is this the absolute best that this could possibly be? And what I've realized only recently, like maybe in the last week, is that this is the wrong way to be looking at um, this whole process, because what it leads to is like an incredible amount of like bike shedding just trying to figure out like should this class be called rounded or should it be called radius for example as like a real thing that i consider changing and the whole motivation for that is that currently we have these border radius classes that are like dot rounded l dot rounded r or whatever um but when you want to unround a corner maybe at a different breakpoint, you do rounded none and i hated that class name because i found myself always typing rounded zero and getting it wrong mm. So I was trying to think, like, how can I prevent myself from making this mistake? Well, I could change it to, um, like, radius zero, and I'm never going to want to do radius none. Like, if it's a radius, zero is right. That's more intuitive to me. Um, But there's a whole bunch of other kind of trade-offs that come with that. Like, one is it's a breaking change, and it's an annoying breaking change because it means editing your HTML, and I have to actually consider that. Like, for me, I'm more willing to do these upgrades because i maintain the framework but for someone who's just using it on a project they're probably just never going to upgrade to 1.0 if it feels like uh it's going to be a day of work to do it and what's there is working fine right and and first of all it's fine if they just keep what's using what's there because it was working and it's not going to stop working um but yeah uh, the thing with like changing to like radius zero is then i'm like okay well what do i want to do for the values after zero do i want them right now it's like rounded sm rounded lg do I want to keep using that sort of t-shirt size scale um, for the the values that aren't zero and then use numeric for zero? Well, that kind of feels inconsistent. So I keep finding myself trying to figure out, oh, what's the exact p- perfect thing? But th- there is no perfect thing. There's like pros and cons to each one. And even if something is slightly better, I have to take into account the the impact of the breaking change on people and ask myself like, okay, this is 1% better, but there's still things I don't like about it. They're just different things. Do I want to force people to write all to change all their HTML for that? Like probably not. Right. Um, and I had the exact same problem with like the line height and letter spacing classes, which was like a huge thing. And I'll link to all the GitHub issues and pull requests I created and closed around it and everything. Um, (laughs) but anyways, ultimately Ultimately, at the end of the day, what I kind of realized is um, 
I need to stop going through trying to find things to perfect and instead just going through trying to fix things that are broken. Um, especially with a CSS framework, when it comes to things like class names, th- they only matter when you're sort of learning them for the very first time. And once you sort of memorize them, you don't really care what the words are anymore. Like you don't care if you're writing class equals rounded SM versus radius one or radius SM. It's like all you care about is that it's rounding the corners on the element. Um, and that's kind of what I've needed to realize is that none of this stuff matters that much unless it's a huge problem. And yeah. it's, it's better to just not ruin everyone's muscle memory and ruin everyone's projects um, if a class name is good enough. Like if it's past that threshold of I could justify having this class name, then I should just sort of sort of leave it as is. So um, I can't even remember what the very original question was, but all that to say, like what I've realized is that Oh yeah, we were talking about like how much change is there going to be and stuff. So at one point, I was worried that it was going to be a lot of changes because I was just going to go through and like micro optimize everything and improve everything as much as possible. Um, but now I'm realizing that I think like backwards compatibility is actually um, more valuable to me than like mm-hmm. fine tuning some of these little things that really just don't deliver a lot of benefit and changing. So I'm really hoping that there's not going to be really drastic. Well, not really hoping. Like I know for a fact that there's not going to be a lot of drastic changes. There's, I think I've changed one class name so far, <laughs> and it's a class name that I almost doubt anyone has ever even used. Um, <laughs> which is so we have this class called Roman, which was basically the opposite of italic. And the only reason it exists is if you set an element to italic, but then at a different breakpoint, you want to unitalicize it. it, you do like MD Roman. And that's because that's like the typographical term for straight letters like that. Mm. And the only reason we made it that we originally wanted the class to be called not italic. Um, but there was a bug in this post CSS library that handles like complex not pseudo selectors because there's like a css4 feature or something for doing like more complex things with the not pseudo selector so where you have like colon not bracket and then like some stuff inside of it so there's a bug with that library that was parsing classes like md not italic as having that not pseudo selector in them even though the the colon was escaped so we changed it to roman because of that bug because we didn't we wanted people to be able to use like css next or post css preset env that By use the that way, library this is the kind of stuff that is why i pay you to to work on on tailwind <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so we ended up calling it roman but since that happened a year ago or whatever that bug has been fixed and CSS next has actually been deprecated entirely in favor of post CSS preset env, which uses the updated version of that library now. So that bug only really exists if you're stuck on old versions of some of those dependencies. So I thought, okay, well now seems like a good time to switch that back to being called non italic, which is a much more intuitive name than Roman, which I had to dig and dig through the internet to even find out what word could I use to represent this. Right. Um, so I think that's the only class name that's actually um, changed. So you shouldn't have to make any changes to your HTML except for that. And then any other changes are actually at the configuration level, which should be a lot more straightforward because they're all localized in just one file that you have to edit. I think that's um, I'm really happy to hear that because I, I know, you know, just 
with some of our conversations, you were thinking about these different um, API decisions that you made and kind of asking yourself the question, well, what if I were to start today with what I know now, what would things look like? But then you got to this point where you realized, you know, there's kind of trade-offs everywhere. And the reality is that, you know, Tailwind got super popular and, and people find it super valuable because a, a big part of the reason is because of your your tastes and your personality in the framework. And that's really true for all the software we use. I mean, it's very much influenced by the creator, by their personal beliefs and tastes. And so, you know, when you first spiked on Tailwind and made the decisions you made and you wanted it to feel good to use, you wanted to use it. It was really a tool for yourself. Mm -hmm. And it so happened that a lot of people share your tastes and preferences and it's why they like the tool. And so kind of coming back to that and saying, well, you know, here are the few things that I want to change about it. But by and large, I, I like what I decided. And um, again, there's not a reason to hyper analyze now that we're kind of popular. Let's micro optimize. No, let's just keep it something that I would want to use myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just it's really tempting to go through and sort of make all the decisions that we made when we originally released it all over again yeah you know what i mean and um i'm glad i sort of realized after trying to do the line height and lender spacing classes which again i'll link to sort of that discussion in the show notes but um yeah i'm glad i eventually realized that like i'm torturing myself by doing this and that i actually use tailwind every day and i find it fine you know what i mean so exactly why try and make things better like it's already past the point where um i don't question like oh this is horrible this is stupid this is right. crap or whatever there were things you would have like already that changed those in the minor versions almost all of that stuff yeah exactly and and a lot of stuff has changed in that regard like there were things that sucked that i'm glad we changed like um we did some stuff with um, like border radius. So uh, if you just wanted to change like the border radius on like just one side of an element, like the left side of an element or something, um, we, I think originally those classes were also setting the border radius on the other side to zero or something like that. And I think Tachyons works this way too. There's like some cleverness in how they try to make these things simple by sort of doing the opposite of what you're asking it to do, even though like the outcome is maybe the same. Little things like that we changed to be more explicit. Mm -hmm. And um, so now like if you have like an element that's rounded and then at a different breakpoint, you just want to do like rounded R, you have to do rounded and then like MD rounded R, MD rounded L zero. Like you have to explicitly undo it. And and it's little things like that that actually were problems for whatever reason that we eventually already fixed. So anything that I would want to fix now is like so superficial that it's just like a, such a pedantic change to make. I, I think that's 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 great again to hear as a user, knowing that the 1.0 is really more about just solidifying things. So you know, on the one perspective, on the one end of the spectrum, you've got like Angular 1 to Angular 2, right? And then yeah. on the other end of the spectrum, you've got like, you know, the Ember 3.0 release was like removing deprecations in Ember 2. That's yeah. like all it was. And I so, think that's the ultimate approach if you can do it that way. So it sounds like Tailwind is closer to that end. And um, again, as someone who's happy with the way Tailwind is today and all the people out there who have apps that depend on Tailwind's current APIs, I think that's great news. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm probably going to release like a version 0.8 um, as like a 1.0 preview release. Um, 
I could just do like a 1.0 alpha or something like that. Yeah, but I, beta. I kind of think that doesn't make sense in the stage that we're at. Like if, if there's like drastic changes where I'm not sure about and I might want to revert them or something, then maybe. But I see like the that approach making more sense if you've already tagged a major version. So like if you're on 1.0 seven and mm-hmm. you release like a 2.0 alpha then you kind of have to you can't just do like 1.8 with breaking mm-hmm. changes mm-hmm. but because we're pre 1.0 i feel like i can do 0.8 and sort of put the upgrade guide as like okay upgrade to 0.8 has all the stuff that you need to change for 1.0 and then two weeks later if i've decided not to change anything i can just tag 1.0 with literally without changing anything from from 0.8 you know i think that's good especially because you can just look at that delta and know like oh when i went from 06 to 07 it was pretty easy so 07 to 08 is probably going to be about the same and yeah and then um it just makes it more palatable for the users yeah i think the tricky part there is going to be communicating when 1.0 comes out like what the upgrade path is to 1.0 i might just have to put it in the docs like if you're upgrading from less than 0.8 then it's this but if it's right. from 0.8 and above like literally you have to do nothing um, yeah so yeah my plan is to tag an 0.8 within the next probably two weeks and have that basically be the first 1.0 preview and that way people can sort of try it out in the real world too and i can wait a couple weeks and see if people actually have run into problems um yeah so so that's kind of the plan um i think it'd be cool to probably talk about some of the things that actually are changing though what do you think yeah absolutely um that's exciting that that you have a date on it so you're kind of committing (laughs) to some extent it was gonna be february was like i i promised it was gonna be out in february and now it's not um but now i'm saying before we go to microconf in march there you go um it's a good that's a good public uh, deadline yeah so but a month from now at the very latest i'd like to get it out sooner though because i want to do other things yeah cool <laughs> the other interesting thing about tailwind is that so much of kind of the, the end user api like the actual apis that people use are really uh their user land values and then yeah. some of the api is tailwind kind of internal values so you can actually change a lot of the the suggested user land values without technically breaking the public API. So yeah, maybe we can get into what some of the actual changes are. Yeah. So actually, that's an interesting point and and leads into sort of one of the bigger philosophical changes that I think we're making in 1.0, which sounds kind of like a bigger deal than it is. But um, basically, yeah, you're right that right now in Tailwind 0. whatever, when you do like Tailwind init to scaffold out your new config file we kind of fill it with every default value. So we give you like the full list of border radiuses, the full list, full list of font sizes, text colors, you know, border widths. Every single sort of variable in Tailwind is sort of published to your project and you're sort of given ownership from day one of all those values. The nice thing about that, and it has been nice up, to, up until now actually, is like you said, if I decide that in Tailwind... 0.8 instead of the opacity scale being like 0 25 50 75 100 i want it to be like 0 10 20 30 40 50 60 70 80 90 100 i can change that and not really think about it in my head as a breaking change because anyone who's on a previous version of tailwind should have their own opacities published 
and they they're going to have Tailwind's old defaults in their file, which is going to override Tailwind's actual built-in defaults, even if they've changed. Um, so that's been nice because it let us iterate on those values a little bit more easily. Um, but something that I want to do for Tailwind 1.0 uh, that kind of took a lot of thinking and discussion to get to is basically trying to encourage people in a sense to depend on Tailwind's defaults more than they currently are. And the actual like practical consequences of that change are really just that now by default, uh, when you scaffold the Tailwind config file, instead of getting every single value for everything in your file out of the box, it's going to be basically an empty config file. Um, and the idea is that your config file is only going to contain the things that you've changed or extended maybe so like maybe you added some more spacing values or you've overridden the border radiuses or overridden the border widths or whatever the idea is that now until 1.0 you'll be able to look at your config file and see these are the things that are different than the tailwind defaults whereas currently when you look at your config file there's literally no way to tell what tailwind generated for you and what you've changed unless you've created some superficial way to do that yourself by like adding comments and splitting things up or whatever um so sort of the reason for that i think is that most people are already depending on the tailwind default scales and design system tokens um because one of the value propositions of tailwind is you don't have to kind of invent everything from scratch like the main thing is we want it to be super, super customizable so that you never have to design something where you feel like, I can't use Tailwind for this. I have to go back to raw CSS because mm-hmm. that's the problem I was running into with existing CSS frameworks. Mm-hmm. I want to have this like jumping off point that gets me like going a lot faster than just raw CSS, but doesn't come with like any baggage that I have to ch- sort of undo or is impossible to sort of work around. And I think we've done a pretty good job with that so far. Like, I definitely don't think there's anything currently baked into Tailwind that would force you to not use it. You know what I mean? Because it isn't, is incompatible with the design you're trying to implement. Do you agree with that? Yeah. And I, I think you're being humble because I think, uh, the amount of care and attention to detail you've put into the default values to be able to support the array of websites that are, and, and apps that have already been built with Tailwind is just a testament to how, um, you know, how carefully they were selected and, and how, um, useful they are. So it's, you really want, if you're thinking about the ideal kind of onboarding experience for a new user to tailwind, the story you would tell them is not, you know, install tailwind. And then like, oh yeah, we put like some, we put some default colors in there for you, like blue, green, and red, but you know, you can go ahead and change all that as you start going. That's not really the onboarding story you want to tell. The story is really, you know, install tailwind and, you're going to have a set of curated values that are uh, high enough level that you don't have to feel agony over choosing colors, but they're low enough level that your site's not going to look like every other Tailwind site out there. And so you're going to feel like a designer. I mean, really, you're going to feel like an experienced designer. Um, You're going to feel like you have superpowers because you're going to have the access to the set of values that's been uh, carefully chosen for you and uh, gets you going. So I think because that was my experience. I think that was a lot of people's experience. The fact that you're basically doubling down on that vision for, for 1.0 is something that really excites me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So, so basically like there's a lot of things in the default configuration that I don't think need to change for different people's websites. Um, like there's a couple things that are going to always change on sites, but we might even make it simpler to not have to manually do this stuff, but things like colors, you know, like every site kind of has like a color scheme based on the brand and stuff. So it's pretty common that you're going to change the color palette. Um, pretty common that you're going to change like the fonts. You might be using some type kit font or something. And we just ship with like a good set of sort of system fonts out of the box so that you don't force people to depend on web fonts or anything. But if you want to use web fonts or something, you're going to have to customize that stuff. And then I think the only other thing or the next most likely thing that you'd want to customize is maybe the breakpoints, uh, depending on if someone's like just giving you a design that's sort of been pre-designed and you need to sort of accommodate what they've done there. But aside from that, a lot of this stuff is actually pretty generally applicable. So like the padding and margin scale, for example, um, we have a very comprehensive system sort of in place for that, that I think does a good job balancing um, sort of being a constrained set so you're not like bike shedding over one pixel versus two pixels all the time but also is like has enough options that you don't feel like you have to go in and add a new value or that you have to go and customize something at least that should be very rare but things like that don't really make they don't really dictate how a site looks from like a what's the brand perspective you know what i mean like apple and stripe and microsoft could all use the exact same padding scale and you would never know because whatever it's just good enough and works for for a lot of different sites and i think most of the things that are customizable in tailwind actually fall into that category so we were already sort of shouldering that burden in a lot of ways by making sure that the defaults were always good and justifiable because I didn't want them to suck. Like Mm -hmm. why pick bad values when I could pick good values, right? So we were already working really hard to pick good values. But I did find myself a lot of the time leaning on the customization as sort of an excuse when someone wasn't happy with some of the default values and basically saying like, if you don't like the spacing scale, like just customize it. That's the whole point, which I think is still true and good to an extent. But now I sort of empathize with like their request more than I did originally. Like they want the defaults to be better so they don't have to do that customization. So work me and Steve I'm working with, Steve Shoger, who's a really pretty well-known designer these days in the online Twitterverse and stuff. He's been working with me to kind of refine some of the defaults and make them as as kind of well thought out and widely ap- applicable as possible. And our goal is that most Tailwind projects aren't going to have to go and like wholesale replace a lot of these values. They'll mostly just have to extend them with a couple extra options if, if needed or um, just rely on the defaults for the most part or replace things like colors and stuff where necessary. And, and kind of the main motivation for that is twofold. Like one is to just make Tailwind more useful out of the box. And again, and not a lot of these values are changing, but we just want it to be a little bit better. Uh, and then the other thing is to make like knowledge of using Tailwind more portable from project to project. So the better that the defaults are and the more that people can just rely on them, the more that you can just depend on the same values existing for the different classes from project to project. So you don't have to 
go to one project and see the spacing scale is totally different than it was on another one because like Tailwind didn't provide a good enough experience out of the box or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, little did you know when you set out to make a CSS framework, you were actually creating a, a universal design system that's for all, basically, all future web apps. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically what we have been doing, which I think we are doing a pretty good job of achieving that goal. Um, but it is a challenge for sure. But yeah, so we're basically trying to double down on sort of taking ownership of those values more. Um, so like one of the main differences, uh, which we've kind of like alluded to, but haven't explicitly said, is that when you up when you make a new Tailwind 1.0 project, unlike Tailwind 0.0 whatever, um, once you're on 1.0 and you upgrade to another version of Tailwind, if we make changes to any of the defaults, you're going to sort of inherit them automatically unless you've gone out of your way to override them. Um, which means, first of all, we have to be really careful about making sure we're happy with the values because now we really do have to consider like a change to the spacing scale as being a breaking change, um, which we weren't really considering before, although in some sense we should have because just because that we encouraged people to own all of the values didn't mean that people weren't depending on them already. Um, although, you know, what someone decides to depend on versus what we tell people they can depend on are, you know, different things for sure. Yeah, um, te- technically it wasn't a breaking change, but even, even for us, when we would upgrade and see that defaults had changed, um, yeah, we didn't have to take those defaults, but it's also like, oh, why are these changing? Like, I, I, I need to understand this, yeah. or I want to understand this. And that's that's actually interesting that you say that too, because that is sort of another piece of evidence that people they want to stay synchronized with Tailwind's defaults, no matter how much I tell people that they own it and they can customize it. There's sort of two groups of people, right? There's the people who like they do want to own it and they don't want anything to do with our values and those people are very much in the minority i think Mm -hmm. and then there's the people who um want someone else to shoulder that burden and just like oh if adam steve think that this is like a better value then i'm gonna trust that it's a better value and i'd like to use that value too so the fact that people were already having to like anytime we publish a new release of tailwind if we added like a new opacity value or something most people who followed the upgrade guide would add that to their CSS too, even though they've never needed it so far. Right. So it's right. just like another signal that it probably makes more sense to, to encourage people to depend on the defaults, even though it really, it's only like a messaging change because you know, you already could rely on the defaults by just having an empty config file or you already, or even in Tailwind 1.0, you can own everything if you want to by overriding every key. It's just about like what direction we're nudging people in. Totally. I, I think there's one way you could think about this is that there's there's two things going on here. One is Tailwind, the actual framework and how to use it. And the second part is how do you how how can you be successful with Tailwind? And like you all have thought a lot about how to be most successful with Tailwind. And that involves having good defaults values for all these things such that when you hit that part in your design, you go to reach for something and it's already there. So you're not working from scratch. And that's part of what makes Tailwind make people so productive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, at first I was really hesitant about that. And me and you actually spent hours and hours going through like different <laughs> options for, I mean, like, so this comes like to what the real actual core changes in Tailwind are. Like um, one of the things that I didn't like is that the config file just felt like really 
just felt like chaos. It just felt like this huge monstrosity that you had to maintain um, because it's this like eight or 900 line thing that we scaffold out for you with all these different values. And anytime we add new utilities to Tailwind, more keys appear in that config file that you have to own and maintain. And I mean, one of the biggest pain points for people was like, okay, I updated the config files changed. How do I update my config file? And the best I could do is be like, here's a diff, like manually do it. Um, so one of the things that me and you worked on was trying to figure out like, okay, is there a way to make this config file feel more like simple and to make it feel like less, like a big monstrosity, overwhelming file. And we went down all these roads of like splitting the config file up into like multiple files. And the idea was that tailwind init would actually scaffold like a directory now instead of just a config file. And it would come with like an example plugin that was empty that you could use to create your own plugins and maybe it would scaffold like the default CSS file for you with all the at tailwind preflight at tail, like and and for a long time I was sold on that. I was like, yes, this relieves like so much of the the pain because like now instead of just having this like crazy file that feels like it's gonna burst at any point, we've sort of like split it up and it feels kind of nice. But I eventually I decided I didn't like that approach because it felt like bringing tailwind into your project was it communicated that it was like a much heavier framework than it really is in some ways like it just felt like okay i'm scaffolding up this thing it's created maybe like 75 files because we had a different file for sort of each utility configuration mm-hmm. and it's like holy crap like i just want to test out the css framework and now it's like thrown 75 files on like six different folders into my project it just kind of makes you feel like uh get reset hard you know what i mean right. like <laughs> i don't want something that's like trying to take over my project this way and it's purely a superficial thing but i think that's the feeling that people would have got or at least that's what i was worried about so that's when like I had a conversation with my my buddy Jason, who eventually convinced me, and it was kind of an interesting conversation actually, because he runs a tool called Laravel Shift, which is um, a tool for automated, automating like upgrades between Laravel versions. So if you're on like Laravel five point four and you want to upgrade to five point five, you just sort of connect your repository, and it sort of pulls down all your code, um, and creates a bunch of pull requests with all of the different changes to update your project and some things are not possible to update so it'll just give you like a comment saying like hey we noticed that your file or or like this file has changed in this version of laravel we can't automatically apply the updates but we're giving you this like checklist items that you know to do it and it's like a really cool tool Uh, but it's interesting talking to him about it because he has seen so many projects needing to be upgraded and like has experience with what the pain points people have Mm -hmm. are and stuff And he basically convinced me like um, the less code that you can give people ownership of the better in terms of an upgrade process. Uh, I mean, that's, that's definitely true. Even with um, our tailwind wrapper, the way we do it and scaffold out the files, when you see a bunch of them change, it's kind of like easier not to upgrade it. But that that goes against what you want, which is you want, you want everyone to be using the shared language, the shared design system and to always be ideally on the latest version. Yeah. Yeah. So he was basically like, if you can keep the entire framework in the node modules directory so that it's untouchable, that is the ideal situation. And you only want to expose as much as necessary. And it's obvious when you think about it, but kind of that conversation is what eventually convinced me to decide like, 
yes, Tailwind should have a default design system and the recommended path should be that you follow that design system. And of course you have the freedom to deviate from it as much as you want. And we're never going to like force you to do things our way. But um, if we think we have a good system in place, then why like sort of cowardly publish every value to the person's config file and communicate like we don't know if these are good values you can change them if you want why not just say like the actual config file is totally optional you don't even have to make one if you don't want and it should only be there if there's things you want to change and the cool thing about that is once i started thinking about it that way it's easy to find a lot of precedent for other projects that work this way like view cli for example their config file is completely optional it doesn't have to exist it's only there if you want to change things um yeah, convention and over configuration. A hundred percent. And the nice thing about that is it solved that problem of the config file being this monstrosity in a totally different way than trying to create folders and stuff. You know what I mean? It was like, let's take like 10 steps back right. and think about like, what's the root of this problem? Instead of trying to figure out, okay, we've got a thousand lines of code. How can we split it up to feel as welcoming as possible? What if we just had zero lines of code instead of a thousand lines of code, you know? Right, right. It was the wrong question. What you really should have been asking is, are we ready to step up and take more ownership over kind of the design aspects of Tailwind? Yeah. And I was really hesitant about that. And I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm hesitant about it now, but I still kind of feel like there is this risk that by doing that, Tailwind doesn't send the message of being the customizable framework the same way that it does now. Um, but I think it's easier to work around that problem than the other problem. Yeah. And I mean, it also affects how things are going to change in the future, right? Because if you're taking a different perspective, you might be able to serve the majority of people who wanted that aspect of Tailwind better in the future, you know? Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So there are two major problems with relying on your users to submit bug reports to you when they find something broken in your app. Number one, you can't discover all bugs this way. And number two, some users don't even bother submitting bug reports. They just wait for you to fix it, and if you don't, they just leave the service. Now, the best software teams practice proactive error monitoring, which means you detect all the errors in your production apps and services in real time, and then you can debug important errors in minutes or hours, often before your users even notice. Uh, teams from big companies you might have heard of like Twilio, CircleCI, Instacart, they use Rollbar to do this. With Rollbar, you get a real-time feed of all your errors so you know exactly what's broken in production, and Rollbar automatically collects all the relevant data and metadata you need to debug those errors so you don't have to waste time sifting through logs. Debugging errors with Rollbar is crazy fast. You get the exact stack trace linked directly into your code base, the request parameters to easily reproduce the issue yourself, a data on which user is affected so you know if it's the same user repeating the same error again, what browser and operating system, basically everything you need all in one place. They also have this awesome telemetry feature that's kind of like getting a black box recorder after a crash but for errors. It shows you all the browser events leading up to that error. Uh, so if you aren't using Rollbar already, there's a special offer just for full stack radio listeners. If you head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio, create an account and install Rollbar in your application, Rollbar will give you a $100 gift card that you can spend to support any of your favorite open source projects at Open Collective. So thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring the podcast this week. Back to the show. So why don't you talk about some of the actual specific changes that that are are going into the config file format? Yeah. So the biggest change is basically the history of it is when we first created Tailwind, 
the only keys in the config file were keys that mapped to like specific utilities, right? So the only things in there were like, well, colors is a bad example, but we did have colors in there so that you could access your whole color palette, but things like fonts, width, padding, margin. Um, there was nothing in there that, that didn't map to like how something looked. Uh, and then later on, we started adding like more like configuration-y options to Tailwind itself. Things like, do you want to automatically prefix all of Tailwind's generated classes with a namespace so it doesn't collide with any of your existing CSS? Or do you want the utilities to be important by default or not important by default? Or um, like right now we use the colon as like this separator character between like variants and the class names, like MD colon flex, for example, to only make this flexbox display on uh, medium screen sizes and above so we have an option where you can configure that character so instead of it being a, a colon you can make it like a double underscore or something because some people were using templating languages like pug that don't let you use um, those characters without sort of dropping down to their lower level apis like you mm-hmm. can't do their like just nice like dot flex and have that auto convert to a div and stuff like that so once we started introducing options and stuff like that, we we introduced them under this new options key in the config file. So the top level keys in the config were like colors, fonts, width, padding, margin. And then there was this options key and all of like Tailwind's configuration options lived in there. And then we wanted to add the ability for people to customize like what variants were generated for what utilities. So like in the early versions of Tailwind, you couldn't control if like hover and focus versions were generated for a specific class of utilities we just had that opinion we're like background color you can there's a hover and focus version or or border color there's a hover and focus version or um like text style there's an up like for uppercasing text you can do that on hover but things like float you couldn't change float on hover and there was no way to do it um and that was, we, we always, always planned to be able to make that stuff customizable, but we just didn't get it in there for the first version. But when we did make it customizable, we had to figure out how do we expose that customization in the config file. And eventually that led to this new top level key called modules, which was a list of all the different like utility modules in Tailwind with an array of what variants you wanted for each one. So now we had this config file where like the top level keys were like options, modules, and then all these different like uh, sort of design system related things like padding and margin. But in the same namespace as options and modules. Ex- exactly. So like padding was at the exact same level in the config file as options. And if I had known from day one that we were going to have these other options, I never would have done it that way. Like it doesn't make sense for all that stuff to be at the top level. So the biggest change to the config well for 1.0 is that in the config file now everything that used to be at the top level that is design system related so everything except modules and options basically has all kind of been grouped under a new key called theme um and we tried a couple different names for it like once i was one point i called it styles um ultimately i decided that theme had like the most precedent behind it in other places and even though i don't really think of it as like a theme like a bootstrap theme it does kind of make sense as like they're the theme variables for your for your site or whatever so all that stuff is under theme now and what we also did is took all of the things that were in options and just made them top level 
because that's what the config file is now. It's just options and theme is just another option, just like the prefix. And um, we renamed the modules key to variants because that is kind of the language that ended up dominating what we were talking about there anyways. Like um, that's how we refer to it in the documentation now. That's how people refer to it in the discord channel. Like that's the terminology that sort of bubbled up to the top and the word modules just didn't really mean anything. Um, so that's sort of the biggest change. And what I think is nice about that is it makes it like really makes it, even though it's not that much simpler, really, you can still do it, but it kind of feels nicer that theme is its own key. Cause if you wanted to put all that stuff in a separate file, it kind of feels logical that you could just have theme require theme.js or whatever. Totally. And then if you want to import that, all those theme variables into like your reactor view or ember components or whatever to be able to reference those variables for things you could just import that theme file so it's nice that it's like it feels separate and that you can you can pull it out separately if you wanted to whereas before it was just like spread in with everything else yep and that kind of felt gross so i don't know how much of an improvement does that feel like to you i think it's good um i think it it's um yeah, it's like a rationalization of those two parts of the system. And, um, you know, in, in Ember CLI Tailwind, we re-export all of the theme-related modules, but um, there is no clear delineation there. Whereas now, like you said, we could just grab the theme key, and that's all the variables you would need to, let's say, build a style guide for your UI components, or if you wanted to access a color in an Ember component at runtime, something like that. You'd know you yeah. could just get it off the theme. I also feel like it just giving a name to that part of Tailwind helps the community talk about it. It will help the documentation talk about it. Everyone is, is going to know what you're talking about when you're talking about your Tailwind theme. So I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a big improvement. I'm, uh, I'm happy with where we landed on that. Um, I was hesitant about the word theme at first, but it's really growing on me now. And I think, I think it looks good in the config file. Um, so the other changes really are again, superficial configuration file changes. So basically I went through all the different module names, like using kind of legacy terminology now module. But, um, one of the things I didn't like, and me and Jonathan, when we were first creating Tailwind agonized over this originally too, was just like all the module names felt inconsistent like some were plural like background colors while others were singular like width some matched the css property like opacity matches the css property but letting doesn't match the css property and they just kind of all felt like they were considered completely independently and there was no convention or guessability to the names really in a lot of ways and at first when we were first creating Tailwind, we didn't really care about it that much. Well, we cared about it, but we decided to kind of do it the way we did because, again, all the top-level keys were just saying, like, this is a list of values for, like, some specific utility. So for a lot of things, it felt more natural for it to be plural, like fonts, and then a list of your fonts. Like, that feels correct. But then when we added the ability to, like, customize the variants, all of a sudden the the inconsistency started to really stick out because you look at this big list of all the names now and it's like background attachment and you just have responsive next to it and then you have fonts and it's like um hover focus it's like well if one of them is like the css property and another one is just a plural name of the values like what's the what's the logic behind that mm -hmm. um so i decided like i wanted to rename all those keys to sort of 
optimize for thinking of them as like the name of that plugin inside of Tailwind. So I think in my head things like, okay, I want to disable the background attachment plugin. Okay, so I know that it should be called background attachment. I don't want to say I want to disable the fonts plugin because even though it's not doesn't sound completely wrong, it it sounds more right to say I want to disable the font family plugin. Right. Um, so that kind of led me to decide, okay, I want everything to be singular instead of plural, and I want to prefer using the CSS terminology unless there's a really, really good reason not to. And the only situations that I decided to deviate from that were for text colors. So in CSS, the property for changing a text color is just color, right? As stupid as that is, to me, that's a problem in CSS, honestly, because... <laughs> How many times have you seen someone say like div color green thinking that now they're going to have a green div? Actually, right. you have a transparent div with green text. Right. Um, right. It just feels like, okay, that's the color of the text, not the color of the element. Um, so we, or I decided to make that still remain text color. It used to be text colors, but we're singularizing it to text color. And the only reason is because we already have a key called colors where you specify like your whole color palette. Um, and I didn't want to have colors and color because that just seemed like it was going to be too easy to mix up. Um, the, the text reason... color it, it being explicit is nice too, also in the class name too, just so you understand, you know. It's yeah, because the, the class is called text dash green or whatever. So right. that's the reason I called it text color instead of font color. Since I was going to deviate from the CSS name, I might as well try and tie it in with the class name at least. Um, the reason like colors is still plural is because it actually doesn't tie to a specific CSS thing. It's actually more of like a, it's really just like a shared constant that is shared between a bunch of other things. Do you so want to talk about that? Cause aren't there a few that fall into that bucket? There's two right now. So if you're familiar with like the old tailwind config file or the current tailwind config file, depending on how you want to think about it at the top, there was always this like let colors equals object statement so that we could reuse that colors variable in your config file for text color, border color, and background color. Um, I always hated that this config file started with this variable instead of like module.exports equals. It just was so stupid. Um, I convinced myself that it was fine because it's like, well, it's a JavaScript file. If you want to solve duplication, you solve duplication by writing JavaScript that solves duplication. You know what I mean? So that means putting stuff in a variable or a constant. <laughs> um, but in Tailwind 1.0, I decided that I will make the Tailwind config file a little bit more magical. And it's actually not magical. There was some magical solutions, but the solution I ended up on is not magical, where you specify the colors in the theme and other things can still depend on that definition. So the reason we had to have a variable originally is because you can't have like self-referencing objects in JavaScript, right? I can't have so like... just to add a little bit of clarity that, that what you're saying is because let's say you have background green background color green and, and you have a text color green and you don't at the lowest level those could be specified as two different things but mm -hmm. the default what you want to nudge people towards is to say you choose a green and then we're automatically going to use yeah. that in every yeah. one of those color related plugins yeah so you just have one color palette that's kind of shared across everything instead of having background colors that's totally divorced from text colors and divorced from border colors right um yeah so now your colors are specified in like theme 
dot colors essentially there's no dot but you know like if you're thinking about like the nesting and the object and um border colors background colors and text colors by default depend on those colors and the way that that's implemented is this new feature which isn't really a change it's telling but a feature where um theme keys can be specified as closures instead of values so if you specify background color is a function well when tailwind tries to like resolve your config file it'll execute that function passing in the existing config that's already been resolved to this point cool so you can reference other things off of that config Very you cool. can kind of get yourself in like circular reference um recursive hell if you're not careful but i think most people will be able to figure out pretty quickly that they can't have one lazy result depend on another lazy result like they ultimately have to depend on something concrete static right yeah but that's neat because then you can say things are basically derived from other things in in the theme yeah yeah and and you're just doing it with just javascript essentially which is which is pretty cool um so that way we don't have to have this variable at the top and it gives kind of like a initial example of how you can share things in your tailwind theme so the other one that we added, um, which is sort of inspired by a pull request and sort of a lot of people's just experience, was uh, extracting a new spacing uh, kind of constant. So now in your theme, you can have a key called spacing and then margin and padding and negative margin. And also um, width and height will depend on this, although width and height extend it with other values too. But this way, you just have this consistent spacing sizing scale. So like... You know, if you're setting like padding four and you're setting something to height four, that those are going to be the same and they're kind of locked great. together. I mean, there's like been so place. many times um, just adding a, a utility, to a, a scale value to padding and then thinking it's already there for margin just later on, you know, future me a week or a month from now yeah, yeah. and it not being there and just being like, why? Yeah. Why is it not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just forgetting that. So I think that's another example of like one of the lessons that Tailwind teaches you the power that you actually only need a, a really small constrained subset of values to work with. And so yeah. you actually don't need to specify margin and padding separately. What you really need is this higher level um, spacing scale and that can, yeah. that can power all yeah. these things. Totally. Pretty cool. Yeah. So then like the other kind of thing that we introduced in the config that's similar to that is um, basically adding first class support for extending the default theme. So you can imagine that like by default, if you override a key in your theme like you override background color to be a list of colors that's going to replace the default theme values completely right whereas for a lot of things you actually don't want to replace what's there you just want to add a couple of your own in addition to what tailwind's defaults are so at first i was thinking well someone could do that by just maybe we export the default theme as one of our exports in tailwind and if you want to reference it you can just import it at the top of your file and then if you want to add a new Let's think of a good example, like text size or font size. Say you want to add 6XL and we only go up to 5XL by default. You could just say like font size and then dot, 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 default theme dot font size to sort of spread in the defaults and to sort of merge them into yours. And then you specify your additional one at the end. Um, so that way, Tailwind config file only has to support replacing keys and doesn't actually have to have any sort of fanciness for extending values because you can just do it with JavaScript. Um, but because of the closure stuff that I was talking about before and some of the ability to sort of evaluate things lazily, 
it turns out that there's like weird situations you can run into where trying to just use the spread operator isn't going to be intuitive. You're going to get results that you don't expect. So instead, I added this new key under theme called extend, where anything you put under there um, just extends the stuff that's built into Tailwind. Or even it can extend your overrides too, like the way it's evaluated, but no one would ever do that, so it doesn't matter. But basically, if you just want to add a text size now, you would add an extend key under theme, then you would add a font size key under extend, and it's font size now because we've standardized on the CSS names and the singularized version of things. And then you would just add 6XL. Um, so you don't have to do the dot, dot, dot thing. And this ends up being like a lot simpler, and we can kind of take care of some of the complex scenarios sort of automatically under the hood for you. That's pretty cool. So basically if I install Tailwind and I already have my design, I know what my colors are, I'm going to do theme.colors and just set my, you know, 15 colors, let's say, and that's going to be the entire universe of colors I get to work yeah. with. And that'll but, override Tailwind. So Tailwind's colors override. are not deleted essentially. But then if I want to just add, you know, 1280 pixels, I'm working on a video site and I want that for my width and, um, you know, width of, of an element or something, I can go to extend and I could either extend the spacing scale or maybe extend, um, the width plugin and just yeah. add that 1280. And that yeah. way I, I can just see right there. That's great because then now I can go to the tailwind css.com and just know I have all those things other than colors because I've completely yeah. placed colors. Yeah. So there's a clear separation in the file now where you can see like, this is the stuff I'm completely replacing. And this is the stuff I'm just sort of augmenting my own stuff. Very cool. Um, so that's like one of the other kind of features that's coming to the config file. I think like one thing to clarify that kind of just came to me is that even though like we're changing all these keys in the config, so like text sizes becomes font size, the, none of the class names change in that regard. So like the font size module or core plugin, as I'm referring to them now, still generates text XL, text SM, whatever. Like there's no... The, the class names are separate from the name of the plugin. Um, and that's the same for like letting and tracking we used to have, for example. I was thinking about changing those class names, but ultimately I decided we're still going to have letting tight, tracking wide, whatever. But in the config file, you change that stuff under the line height and letter spacing key because it's the plugin is for setting up your line height stuff and the other plugin is for setting up your letter spacing stuff. And that just makes the makes those keys more guessable. Um, it's like you said, if you go to the website and I'm looking to change the line height, I'm going to type in line height and search. And so I think about that, but the API for when I'm wanting to type classes into my HTML, um, letting and tracking is, is nicer API. There's more pleasant, uh, it's more readable. And it's just a little, it's a little shorter is the main reason that we chose those. But yeah, the, the thing that sort of sealed the deal for me there in terms of thinking, like originally I was debating, should I make the plugins called letting and tracking too so that there's consistency with the class name? Because it seems like if you're in your CSS or in your HTML typing letting tight and then you try letting tighter and there is no tighter and you kind of wish there was, I feel like the first thing you're going to do is go to your config file and go to the theme section and you're going to try adding letting tighter and it's not going to work because you're actually supposed to type line height instead of letting. And that's kind of unfortunate, but... Um, I think choosing line height is a better trade-off for a bunch of other things that sucked about making it letting, namely like every other key in this config file matches the CSS property except this one for why, who knows. <laughs> um, but the thing that made me kind of convinced that it was fine is that in the documentation, like the 
the documentation page for the letting classes is already called line height. The documentation for the tracking classes is called letter spacing because that's how we expect people to discover that even though they have to learn the class name but you still have to learn class names for other stuff too even if they don't like there's lots of other stuff where like the property you're changing doesn't directly match the css class or you still need to learn it anyways like we try to make them intuitive but there's no guarantee that someone's going to guess that to do background size cover, they have to make a class called BG cover, you know, they're not going to know that it's not BG size cover or a whole host of other possible things that could be. So you're always going to have to learn the class names. Um, the, the goal though, is just to make like the classes as discoverable as possible. Um, and I think optimize, I think choosing the CSS property for like the documentation page titles kind of, is the better trade-off there so yeah if you if you need to change if you need to add a new line height or you want to see what the class is you're going to go to the docs and type in line height i mean that's i think that's a good thing to optimize for and like you said there's always going to be aspects of the framework that are learned but in practice it turns out that those are learned very quickly and it's not a problem yeah for sure so i'm trying to think of what else changed in the config file i don't think really anything else it's just the structure of it changed a little bit and a bunch of key names changed like quite a few key names really but the nice thing is it's all localized in the one file and the changes are actually superficial to the point where they could be automated um so at the very least we could easily give you like a function that's like legacy config and in your tailwind config you could upgrade to 1.0 but just change your config to be module.exports equals legacy config pass in your old config we can transform it and it'll all work i don't think i want to encourage people to maintain their old configuration files that way because it's just going to get harder and harder to upgrade if you if you wait but we definitely could write a tool that rips code, does through a code mod. just a code mod yeah it just goes through and finds like oh the letting gets replaced with line height tracking gets replaced with letter spacing everything all these keys get moved under a key called theme um there's I mean, certainly yeah. yeah if it's deterministic the, like that then yeah you could i'm sure you could just find someone in the community just like go to the discord and say i bet you can't write a code mod that changes tailwind <laughs> 8 to tailwind 1.0 config style and then boom you'll have a code yeah. mod for the community <laughs> i think the hard part is if someone is doing like what you do with the ember cli where you have a split into a bunch of files and stuff mm -hmm. that's not going to be doable really right um not simply anyways like i just don't think it's worth the effort to write some tool to automate that because it's it's not that much work totally. to just spend 15 minutes not even that with one file open and then like probably i'll just have a table like in the in the upgrade guide that has like old new old new you know what right, i mean and you just right. go through and change it. it'll take you probably five minutes to do so that's not a big deal totally and i think that'll be like the only really significant piece of work in terms of in terms of upgrading very cool man um i like all the changes um i mean i i think you know both on the ember cli tailwind uh wrapper i maintain but also just conceptually my use i'm excited to kind of offload more of the um the usage of it and the concepts of it to node modules and yeah. um, just <laughs> offload that to you and steve that's great 
Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest reason resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Are, are these changes paving the way for anything kind of exciting in the future? Do you have some ideas for um, where you want to go after 1.0? Or do you kind of see 1.0 if, if you are happy with how it shakes out over the next few months or next year? Do you kind of see it as like a completed project and um, um, you can build things on top of it now, but in terms of Tailwind, you see it as almost yeah. like done? Yeah, there's definitely more projects um, lined up. I don't, I wouldn't say that the changes that we're making are going to necessarily like facilitate them in any direct way. Um, some things are going to be a little bit easier, like... Um, Another breaking change, actually, this one's so trivial, is that instead of at Tailwind pre-flight, you do at Tailwind base. Um, and the reason for that is, like, we've basically turned pre-flight into a module built into Tailwind, just like line height or opacity or something. And we've added the ability in the plugin system for plugins to register base styles. So this way, um, Preflight is just like any other plugin that registers base styles. So if you wanted to, you could disable preflight and pull in like sanitized.css or something if someone had written a Tailwind plugin for it. That would dump those styles into the Tailwind base sort of bucket. So that's a little bit uh, more more flexible uh, in that regard. But in terms of like what's coming, um, <laughs> there's still a bunch of stuff that people want in Tailwind from a like CSS classes it exposes perspective. So 
a really popular one and there's been like a pull request or issue open about this since almost the beginning of tailwind and i just have never taken the time to tackle it is um like transitions Mm-hmm. So people want to be able to have things fade in or fade out or have color just change over a period of time or whatever. And um, I would like to do that, but I don't want to do it for 1.0. Like 1.0 is really just about like locking in what's there, not really so much about new features. There's a couple new things, but like they're mostly new because part of the breaking changes or whatever sort of required adding these or it just made sense to sort of bundle it together. But things like adding a transition support, for example, instead of just having people do it through like plugins or through custom utilities, I think of that as like a one down one or a one right. two sort of thing. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So something like CSS transitions is going to be one of the projects that I work on after 1.0 is out. Um, people still want CSS grid support, and I would like to put that in there, um, especially because people can just disable it if they don't want it. Um, so I'm going to explore that and figure out like what can we provide that is useful. Tricky thing with CSS Grid is so much of it is CSS driven. Like you, there's right. all this crazy stuff you can do in your CSS file that is just not even possible to expose through utilities. Like, have you seen like the um, Grid template area thing where you can basically like use like ASCII art to define yeah. like a <laughs> <laughs> like there's no way for us to do that with utility classes, yeah. right? Yeah. So the best that I think we could probably do is something that's like a bootstrap style grid, but implemented with CSS grid. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe something like that. Um, other kind of feature level things that aren't CSS related. I've got this idea for um, incorporating purge CSS into Tailwind as like a first class thing. Um so Tailwind generates a lot of CSS by default and your CSS files can be really big if you're not careful. So the community is basically like standardized on you use purge CSS with Tailwind. Like most people using Tailwind I, that I talk to anyways are using purge CSS as well and they love it. Um, but there are some annoyances like if you're pulling in like some third party JavaScript library that has styles you have to sort of go out of your way to do some whitelisting and stuff to make sure that those styles don't get ripped out or like make sure that purge CSS is looking in your node modules folder for things. Um, there's just like some tricky configuration and that's fine. Like it's cool that you can remove even third party JavaScript mm-hmm. styles if you're not actually using them. But the whole motivation for using purge CSS is really just to try and tame tailwind. Mm-hmm. But now you have to make sure that it's compatible with all your non-Tailwind CSS too, which can be like a bit of an annoyance. So the nice thing about trying to build Purge CSS into Tailwind is that we can build it in in a way where it only affects Tailwind-generated classes and not any classes that you wrote by hand or that you um, pulled in from NPM or, or whatever. So your your resulting output would be a little bit bigger but you would still get like 99% of the benefit because it's really Tailwind's bloat that you're trying to remove. And then we could do it in like a very safe way where you don't have to worry about all the whitelisting stuff. Something that we could do that's cool too is um, like with Perch CSS, you sort of have to specify essentially like a regex to determine what what the class names are in an HTML file, right? And by default, it doesn't actually catch Tailwind's classes because we use weird characters in the class names. 
So we already have to document, like if you're urging purge CSS, if you're using purge CSS, you got to use this custom extractor with this custom regex. Um, so we could by default build that in so you don't have to worry about that. We could even make it more sophisticated where it like scans your config file and checks what characters are you using mm. in your keys for things. Is this person using a dot in some class names? Like Tailwind doesn't do that by default, but some people do that. Um, if someone's using any weird characters we can automatically add them to the regex so it's like no configuration you know um perfect purging uh which would be really cool um aside from that i don't think i there's actually there's one other feature people are always asking for which is for add apply to work with like hover and responsive styles Mm -hmm. and stuff like that that's a really hard problem but i have a plan for it so that's something i'm going to explore in the spring probably too Um, and then aside from that, I kind of see it as hopefully being pretty slow moving and not really a bunch of stuff changing or being added. Um, the rest of my work then is really going to be on like sort of the surrounding ecosystem. So things like I really wanted to do this tailwind video course, um, and just as like a free thing that's as part of the documentation, sort of like how to design a site with tailwind covering different sort of common situations sort of teach people CSS by accident, you know, because I think a lot of the people that are intrigued by Tailwind but have sort of bad experiences with it are struggling because, like, they don't really know CSS well enough to use it. Like, the ironic thing about Tailwind is it's a CSS framework for people who are really, 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 really good at CSS that prevents them from ever having to write CSS again. (laughs) Right, right, right. You have to know it in in order to, to best use it. I think that's that's exciting too because I know I've watched some of your live streams and pick up all sorts of little things, you know, setting the base um, typography uh, options on, on the root element and anti-alias yeah. and line height and how you think about how line height affects spacing of other elements and how you think about borders and all, all you know, whether you use margin top or margin bottom, all these little things that make you really effective with a Tailwind or any tool like Tailwind and so that would be i think that would be an awesome addition to the project yeah i think so too so gonna do that and then um explore some other ideas me and steve have been tossing around this idea of doing like um like again to sort of help expand tailwind outside of the circle of people who are like already css pros um do some more stuff like component examples like in the tailwind docs we have like a couple examples for like this is how you would build buttons with Tailwind. This is how you might build forms. This is how you might build cards or whatever. Um, so as part of like trying to make Tailwind like a sustainable thing that I can actually work on full time without having to make money elsewhere, I think there's an opportunity to do like premium sort of Tailwind component stuff where we sort of just, we pick like more of a concrete visual style, which Tailwind out of the box doesn't actually you know specify but this would be kind of like an opinionated layer on top of tailwind and there could be multiple of these like a like a theme marketplace essentially where we pre-build a bunch of different like html based components with tailwind so that um you know if there's like a footer for a marketing page we kind of like have like 10 different footers as like starting points you just kind of copy the html throw it into your um site and then if you need to tweak it it's just tweaking it in the html you're not like trying to override a bunch of imported css or weird stuff like that 
So I think that could actually be like a really nice experience for sort of getting things off the shelf, but still having the ability to customize them. I think, um, I think that's something that's been really hard with things that aren't sort of purely HTML driven. Yeah, that's, that's, I haven't even thought about that, but first the fact that you're, you're basically having an HTML snippet, which is going to work whether you're building an SPA or a, a, you know, a PHP application. Yeah. And, um, second, the fact that you've now taken over more of the, um, the base styles so that you can assume more from one yeah. tailwind project to the next You're yeah. now working on the 10th floor. Um, that enables a lot of these um, really powerful abstractions that you wouldn't see in like a lower level CSS a tool where you really can't make any assumptions about the design aspects and the spacing mm-hmm. aspects and all that stuff. So I think it's really cool. That, I mean, that's super exciting to me. And also I, I like what you've done where, you know, 1.0 is about solidifying the APIs and Tailwind is basically this very strong core with um, a really robust plugin ecosystem so that you don't have to add transitions to Tailwind before anyone can get transitions. I mean, I have transitions totally. as Tailwind plugins in my project right now. And so um, that lets you, again, focus on making that core really solid and fostering the ecosystem, but not um, having to be the bottleneck for everybody, you know? Totally. And I think we'll leverage the plugin system even for official stuff i think like this is really common in rails and it's probably common in the ember community too where even official features are developed as like gems or ember Mm add-ons separately and versioned separately for a long time before they finally decide okay let's just like pull this into core and version it alongside the whole framework so that way we can iterate on like css transitions for example i can release like I, I like I claimed like the at tailwind namespace uh, or at, at tailwind CSS namespace on npm, so then you can just do like npm install at tailwind CSS slash transitions and you get like version 0.4 or whatever. And once that gets to 1.0, that's when we like deprecate the project and pull it into tailwind. Or maybe it doesn't get deprecated. Maybe just we maintain it, you know, in parallel or whatever if changes actually happen or. Um, yeah, there's a lot of ways you could do that. It could just, but it could just be a dependency, basically, of Tailwind if you wanted it. It could also be a default install that you could remove. Yep. You know, uh, there's precedent for that in Rails and, and Ember as well. So um, I think that's a really good model because, yeah, yeah, you get to separate the parts that are going to change more frequently from the parts that that are more stable. Yeah, and we can even just like not pull stuff in too, and still maintain them as official libraries. Like maybe yep. that is the better approach for. Like Grid, for example, since it doesn't have, since browser support, it's really good, but if you need to support i11, you can't really use it. Right. Maybe it's better to make it an official plugin until i11 usage drops to the point that, like, we don't have to worry about it. Because there is something nice about if someone wants CSS Grid, all that stuff is in the documentation telling you how to get it, but you have to install it. And by installing it, you sort of have to go through, like, the, sort of warning steps that are kind of telling you, you know, like FYI, like this doesn't work in IE 11 and you're seeing that on your screen before you install this. So, you know, um, because like a common question with Tailwind is like, what's the browser support. Right. And it's kind of a funny question with Tailwind. Cause really that's up to you. Right. <laughs> like what classes do you want to use? Like they all have different browser support. It's not like a bootstrap where certain CSS features are an implementation detail of how we're building some component and you don't know how we're doing it. But it just goes to show that not everybody knows what features are supported and what browsers. And that's obvious, right? Like, I know 
for the most part a lot of stuff but it's because i'm deep deep in this yeah, stuff all the time author tail and css so yeah you have to know yeah so people don't know out of the box like oh can i use object fit like i actually can't in ie 11 i don't even know if you can in edge see i don't even know but like <laughs> um yeah so yeah making it like more clear that uh you're opting into something that doesn't have great browser support and then only keeping the core stuff as being stuff that is like very dependable right you know, could be a good approach too yep no i think it's um i think it's really good and i think um it's very much a convention over configuration framework and, and the key part of that is that it's not that you don't have configuration right it's possible to configure basically everything yeah. but um most people most of the time are going to use the same thing and so why not make that the default why not make that conventional and um yeah it enables a lot of really powerful stuff yeah for sure cool man well uh i don't know is there any other topics related to tailwind that you think are worth getting into from more of an outsider's perspective or uh do you think we kind of covered everything Uh, i think we covered a lot of what was on my mind um i guess um we probably already talked about this, but one way to ask is like, you know, you spend a lot of time on the discuss part of Tailwind and Discord helping people. You've had more in-depth kind of one-on-ones with me and other people who use Tailwind heavily and, and you get kind of inside their mind. Do you have like a visceral sense of, you know, what people want from it and kind of how that's affecting your prioritization? Now you already talked about a lot of that stuff. You talked about, you know, there's there's higher level things people want like transitions and then there's there's lower level things people want and you know you're trying to balance all that with your yeah. work on 1.0 um what do you think is 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 there in terms of what people want and what's missing versus you know actually it's just little things and we're just rounding things out i think the biggest things are well th- the funny thing is that most people aren't really asking for anything which is like a sign that I'm on the right path by just deciding to mostly leave things as they are mm-hmm. make like improve the config file format a little bit. So it's a little bit more flexible and will scale a little better over time as new options are added. And you know, this opinion about encouraging people to inherit from and extend the default theme will simplify some of that stuff too. Uh, but for the most part, no one is complaining about class names or complaining about anything. Right. And when I started doing like, polls around things like oh i'm thinking about changing this class name what do you think so many people were applying like tone is perfect don't screw it up you know yeah, I mean? yeah yeah totally um so that's good in a lot of ways but um i think the main thing honestly is uh people need more hand holding with cr- getting the outcomes that they want with Tailwind. I, I was i was about to say the same thing you know a, a really interesting comment that ryan made the other day was you know um he was working on a new project and he pulled in Tailwind and he was like trying to make some like collapsible panel or something. And he just, we were just chatting and he pulled up the bootstrap guys just as an example. And he was like, man, bootstrap, like you get so much with bootstrap. Like you get so much, you you can just make a web app and not have to like structure or build any of this. Like you just get so many building blocks. And he was like, and I would never install it again. He's like, I would never not install <laughs> Tailwind because I've been bitten so many times. The first time you need, you know, you got your, 
your your modal the first time you need like a full screen modal you're just done like it's just something that doesn't come with bootstrap you're just done and it's like reminds me of you know jquery ui it's the same thing you get so far so fast and when you need something that it doesn't have you're just done so yeah i think it's really interesting that tailwind has started kind of lower level and like you said it's for people who know css the people who are most successful with it understand what they want to do they understand css and they can build there and now because you've made everyone so happy at that level i think the fact that you're focusing on the next level up the higher level giving us component blocks giving us html snippets that ultimately can be reused and get us moving faster but we still have that nice decomposition story it's still convention over configuration so there's still the configuration there available you're never going to hit those roadblocks and hit hit those brick walls you did with, with, with bootstrap totally yeah it's interesting to think about it that way i never really thought about it from that perspective honestly but it's it's interesting because you look at bootstrap and the direction that bootstrap goes is providing more and more escape hatches and low-level utilities right and i think even like bootstrap 4.3 which came out pretty recently the major additions are like more utility classes um so they're trying to sort of like they're back, like back at into this the level. decomposition yeah. story and and they have to try and give people that flexibility whereas like tailwind um it's all there and it's never going away um so we're sort of figuring out like how do we create abstractions on top of this without spoiling what's there and i think most of the <coughs> the answer to that is just the abstractions don't really live in tailwind the css framework they're right. they're ecosystem things like they're they're plugins or they're themes or they're just example snippets on the docs um stuff that yeah yeah so the core is always going to be super flexible and low level and now we're sort of learning from what people actually want and creating the abstractions that they need instead of trying to work the other way around which i think is a lot harder and a lot also just a lot more likely to be borderline impossible without having to break things for people Right. Totally. And, and the fact that the reuse happens in the templating layer or, or the rendering, whatever you want to call it, the rendering layer, you know, we, we have tools and again, we have SPA tools, we have react and view and Ember. We have server side tools that generate HTML, um, Laravel and rails, but Mm -hmm. we all use HTML and CSS. So the fact that we can just have snips of HTML into our own respective, um, reusable, templating layers is a great fit so we can look at that snippet and it's basically a universal snippet you can imagine adding more guides around okay if you were doing a react application how would you do this like i can look at this component example on tailwindcss.com but i just want to see how adam would take this and make a react component out of it maybe he would break it up a little differently than i would for some reason so i think there's still higher level things to to go there in terms of our learnings and our understandings of how to best do this in our respective communities um even if tailwind doesn't need to provide like a drop down that it comes with you know yeah for sure and i think there's room to provide some of that stuff too i haven't figured out the story completely but one of the things i'm really interested in is sort of just like the ui development space is this idea of like like renderless components right um, which I've blogged about and I have a course on view that goes into this in a, a lot of detail, but basically trying to abstract away like the behavior of a UI component <laughs> without enforcing sort of the presentation of it. And I think maybe there's opportunity for like tailwind to expand in that area too, where maybe we have like 
renderless tailwind um, view components, you know? So like here's like a tailwind dropdown as a view component. It provides no HTML at all, but it has all the behavior wired up. So you still have all the flexibility that you don't get with other frameworks, but you also get, but we're also able to implement like the complex JavaScript stuff for you. You know what I mean? Um, and maybe we can do the same thing for React too, because honestly, like translating a component from Vue to React is the most painless thing ever. They're conceptually almost the same. Right. We could even write the Vue components in JSX, so it's like the same, you know. And maybe they can do the same thing like with Ember components too. Like I'm not sure what affordances are there in terms of making it work in every framework, but it sort of fits that ideology that we have of like provide things to get you started faster without enforcing any opinions on the design you know and if tailwind is really not necessarily a css framework but just like a collection of tools to support this main sort of idea yeah, yeah then i think that's just like another thing that we can do to help people achieve those goals and solve those problems yeah you know, I'm I'm just thinking like if I were to if I were to go to work on Monday and my fake job and my job and I had a feature on the top of my backlog which was like implement an autocomplete search box, you know, um, you know, let's say I do the fetch the data fetching and the asynchronous rendering and the loading states and you know I've kind of got that in my mind the mental model of how I'm going to do that. And I've got Tailwind installed, so I know when it comes to making a pill, you know, in this multi-select auto search box and an X, like I kind of know how I'm going to do that at a high level. But there's still this thing where it's like, all right, it's time to, to take where the rubber meets the road. And I have to take these Tailwind classes and structure my HTML in a way that, you know, when I have the drop down, it's going to push things over right. I'm going to have enough room for the input um, helper here, the text of the placeholder color is going to be right. There's a, there's a layer that's kind of like the refactoring UI stuff where it all comes together, where I still feel like there's room for help. And I think that's one area maybe that Tailwind can help. And it, it might look like these component examples you're talking about, but it it might also be, you know, if you're going to make an input with a pill inside of it, here's how you should, here's one way you could structure HTML. Yeah. And I think the right entry point for us in that area is like education first yeah then tooling second you know what i mean yep so like i have this idea i'm going to revamp the tailwind website as part of the 1.0 thing nice um so improve some of the documentation to kind of flush out some of the stuff that isn't totally done um add some more documentation around like sort of core concept stuff and sort of like thinking about how to do stuff with tailwind Uh, but i really want to add like a recipes section to the site that's just like, uh, okay, how do you do like a responsive nav bar with Tailwind? Here's like an embedded thing where you can see how it works. And maybe it's like an iframe that's zoomed out. So you can even like resize the iframe and see it like actually responsively change. Mm-hmm. Then underneath is like sort of a short tutorial that's like explaining what the pieces are, why you should do it this way, whatever. And then just thinking up all sorts of examples like that, that we could yep. sort of put there. So it's not like a library that you install. You still have to sort of do the work yourself, but. I think that's the right place to start anyways because that's like the that's never going to like shoehorn anyone because you you can customize as much as you want it's just like how tailwind itself first started right right it's like we gave you all the values in your config file but now we're sort of starting to to encourage like a different workflow because like things have stabilized or we've kind of 
learned what the community wants, whatever. So I think that's kind of like the, the, the highest impact sort of lowest consequence way to introduce that stuff. You know what I just, it just reminded me of, um, is D3 in the D3 community. Um, it's a very similar setup in the sense that there is a core part of the tool of the framework, which is very low level, very low level. And, um, yeah, and yet, D3 is painfully low, low level. <laughs> yeah. It, it abstracts away some really important stuff. And so, um, it enables all sorts of really cool stuff with so much less code. If you didn't have those abstractions mm-hmm. and, um, you know, when I got into D3, I was big into it for like several years. And, and the way I got into it is the examples. And he basically, you know, Mike Bostock, the creator, took time to make this uh, example playground he called Blocks. Anyone could create a block there. And he would actually curate and feature um, them on the homepage. So he had like four to six that were his tutorial style blocks where you could go and see a bar chart, uh, you know, and he would explain exactly how to do it and his thinking behind it. But then you could actually submit your own and he would also feature certain and there would just be discoverable. So that was really cool because that was basically a starting point. And so now if I need to make a core diagram, I just Google it and I'm going to find a block for it and I'm going to see the code. I'm going to see an interactive example and it's going to get me started. And I can basically copy and paste pieces of that and go. And I would love for that to be something like that for a drop down again would be so cool yeah, because yeah, yeah. now I can just see the pieces, but it's completely flexible. I'm just copy pasting. I'm not going to get locked into your bad and yeah. package, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. And it's funny. Cause like there's like a stigma associated with like copy pasting, right? It's like, well now you've just copy pasted code that you don't understand and you have to maintain it. And if someone fixes a bug, you don't really get to inherit the fix or whatever, but that's not necessarily true for everything. Like, with something like Tailwind, the whole goal is like, I want a starting point, but I don't want to be dependent on you. I don't want your changes. You know what I mean? I want to be able to change it the way that I want and just manage it myself. Um, you have to make that decision and like sort of opt into that. But I think um, what you're saying with D3 is like a great example of that because it's so low level. It's like, here's a bar chart, right? Like, okay, well, I want to take the labels and or the legend and move it over here instead of like some stupid configuration option in your stupid npm thing i'm just literally gonna write the code that moves it over there and and change it you know what i mean right Uh, because i'm comfortable with the tool like i could have written this from scratch if i really had to right that's kind of like the the difference i guess but i'd rather just have like a starting point that i can sort of sculpt and edit than have to totally do it all from scratch totally and and by the end of it you're feeling way more empowered because he's basically taught you through the examples and through the library how you should be thinking about making data-driven visualizations in the browser and it's the same as what you said at the beginning of this conversation which is like one of your goals is to like kind of as a side effect teach people css and teach people how to think about how you should build uis in the browser so that's pretty awesome that that's like um, actually one of the goals, because I think learning by example is a great way to do that, you know, totally. and it's, and it's not like you're leaving people just high and dry because, you know, just like in D3, uh, it's low level and you have all these examples, but then it turns out, look, 90% of the people, uh, need ticks in their bar chart. So, you know what we're going to do? We're going to extract this and pull this back into the framework and make a D3 tick module. So now everyone can use it and it's still going to be low level and you're not going to be stuck with our ticks. You can put them on the other side, you can configure them, but we're going to get you started at a much higher level. And in the same way, 
if everyone's doing transitions the same way, if everyone's doing CSS grid the same way, we all know you're going to pull that in tailwind. But in the meantime, let's just learn by kind of feeling ourselves out in this in this more exploratory way and um, share just code and just copy paste and, and learn together, you know? Totally. Cool, man. Well, I think that's probably a good time to start wrapping things up. Thank you uh, so much for being uh, my companion on this episode <laughs> and having this conversation with me because I, I really wanted to put something out and some, kind of get some of this information out there, but recording it completely by myself sounded like it'd be really awkward. So thanks for uh, taking the time to, to chat with me about this. Absolutely, man. It's been fun watching you uh, make all these decisions and uh, I'm, I'm super excited for 1.0 and, and what else is coming this year. So can't wait to see it. For anybody who's interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 109 uh don't forget i just launched those pre-orders for those full stack radio shirts and stickers so if you're interested in that the link will be in the show notes thanks to rollbar and cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week if you want to leave us a review on itunes that's always appreciated Uh, thanks everyone see you next time